Thank you very much, Monica. I'm just going to check this out. I've got some um, sermon slides there if you'd like to grab them. It just helps with people with some, um, some extra stuff. But otherwise, it's a beautiful passage. It's truly remarkable that we get to serve that Lord, that we spoke about that God that we spoke about in the Nicene Creed. So why don't we bow and let's pray together before we start. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make clear to us the nature of Jesus, something of what he endured for us and something of what it means for our own lives. We pray for those who don't know you, that you would move them closer to you in these things, to write it deeply on their heart. And Father, we pray for those of us who do know you, for those of us who are feeling weighed down and tired, feeling hopeless and darkened at their wit's end. But also for those of us who are feeling great and encouraged. Lord, meet us where we are. Lift us up and give us the power to be like Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, what's the picture of, what's your picture of a Christian life? If you were to take your hopes and your aspirations and paint them onto a canvas and hang it on the wall, what would it look like? Who would be in it? What's going to be in the foreground? What's going to be in the background? And in that picture, where would you be? How would you look? How do you want that picture to look to others? Think about it. And I think, what does that actually look like in reality? Today we've arrived at Philippians chapter 2. We just heard it read by Monica. It is an extraordinary passage. These words that we've heard are remarkable. It's the love of God. It is the love that has the power to change everything. To change hardened hearts. To change hardened people to change self-righteous people like Paul, like you, like me. And he brings us back to himself. And yet us, us, we here, the gathering, the people of God, is one of the greatest demonstrations of the saving work of Christ. And yet how many people that are outside of this look on and say they can't believe the gospel? Because there are too many people who profess they're Christians who live contrary to their faith. In other words, they're hypocrites. Nobody likes hypocrites. And so my question is, do you actually walk the walk? Or do you just talk the talk? Does your life actually line up with what you believe? Because... I found that if you do, it actually changes everything. Absolutely everything has changed. But then what is it to walk the talk? And that's where we turn today. Paul calls us to re-examine our hearts, to re-examine our desires, our actions, and to check, does it all line up? Is it going for the right purpose? So as we step in this passage today, I want us to look at how Paul explains this radical call to walk the talk. And the first thing we see is that he calls for them to have this gospel mindset. A gospel mindset, but what, what does that look like? 
Well, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome to the church he established 10 years prior in Philippi. He's written about his encouragements, his thanksgivings, the impact of the gospel, of the gospel despite his sufferings in chains. And then last week in chapter 1, verses 27, he urges people who are under a great pressure, who are obviously under a great pressure, who are feeling great opposition. And he says, conduct your lives and relationships in a way worthy of the gospel. But Paul's encouragements, his commands, they really ramp up. They ramp up in a big and intense way as we get to chapter 2 here. In verses 1 and 2, Paul takes them and us back to the reality of what has been accomplished in Jesus. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one Spirit and of one mind. Friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been given life. This love, this love He speaks of, it's a gracious love that met each of us, that will meet, meet you, if you do not know the Lord, the Lord, where you are at. And we can be comforted knowing that it is God who began this good work, and it is God who will bring this to completion at the end days. Friends, here together we come as more than just friends. We are the fellowship. We are a fellowship in the Spirit. And so, because of what has been done for us, of who we are, we are unified for a single focus. Jesus Christ's death and His resurrection. It has transformed absolutely everything. And in light of that, we live a certain way. It's an enormous challenge when we read these verses. And as we've touched on it before, what I said in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, we all know it is extremely hard as each of us rub up against each other. We rub shoulders against each other. And so what did Paul say in the 11 to Ephesians? He said, make every effort. And yet, it is really, really hard. But that's the calling. That's the calling that we have to live a life worthy of the gospel. But what does that look like? Well, Paul here in, the, in Philippians, he, he homes in and he explains it further. He says in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. When we read these, these, these statements, that they are so countercultural. It's like going to a job interview, sitting down, going through the rigorous process, going through all the questions for the person at the other side of the desk to say, here, here's the job, offer it to me. And you going, actually... No, I, you see that person over there? That person is better than me. They actually deserve this job. Really, again, some examples from Instagram that popped up on my feed this week. I think show what people really think. One, one post read, Imagine the person you'd become if you stopped worrying about others and put energy into yourself. And another post read, Stop wasting your time on people who don't realise what a privilege it is to know you. Again, I ask you, do you think Paul's commands are extraordinary counter-cultural statements? They are. For all of us, it would have been easier to swallow if he said, value yourself. 
and value others. That makes sense. You know, that makes sense for us now in our world. You, you self-love, you do you, be happy. And then you can help others. It's like on a plane. Adults, put your mask on first before you help anyone else. That's what our society wants to hear. But in reality, I think for many of us, that's, that's kind of what we want to hear as well. I know that's something I struggle with. You know, wouldn't he feel far more comfortable if he'd said, if we would feel far more comfortable if he had said, look to your interests and look to the interests of others. Look to the best for everyone, but most of all, yourself. But he doesn't say that when we look at these verses. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, value others more highly than yourself. He says, don't look to your own interests, look to the interests of others. They are astonishing statements. And it may be easy to dismiss them. You know, so often we can read things in the Bible and go, yeah, yeah, that's good, seems wise, and move on. Except for what he goes on to say. In verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or a more literal translation of the original is, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul's actually doing? He's, he's pointing backwards to what he's just said in verses 2 to 4 but he pivots into this ultimate example of what follows in 6 to 11. To have a gospel mindset then is to have a single desire that your daily life matches the worth of the gospel. A gospel mindset is to have our actions flow from minds dominated by the same thinking that was seen in the humble example of Jesus. But it's also to realize that the next few verses completely transform the way that we've read everything that Paul has just said. He grounds his encouragement for selfless, in the selfless humility of our Saviour. We have a humble example. In verses 6 to 11, we see this humble example of Jesus, and we see it in two stages. We see it in this descent in verses 6 to 8, and we see it in an ascent in 9 to 11. Jesus comes down before he goes back up. It's powerful. And you see, this completely subverts the culture of Rome at the time. It completely subverts our culture that we live in right now. So in the Roman culture, that usually there would be a speech of praise and this list would go through all the titles, all the social climbing a person did in their life. It would start with, X person was born at this date and then list every single good deed, act of service, fame, you name it, everything. From worst to best, it was this honour board. But what do we see here? What do we see in the text? We see, rather than going from worst to best, the description of Christ is the opposite. There's a, there's a guy who was called Pliny that once said this, it is more uglifying to lose than to never get praise. It is more uglifying to lose than to never get praise. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. Look with me, verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There are some massive things we see here. There's some massive things we even just see in verse 6. Jesus was in very nature God. And he was equal with God. Jesus 
was and is God. He is and always has been divine. And yet he did not consider this something to be something to be used for his own advantage. You know, the, the word here actually means to cling to, to cling or to retain something. And so, though he could have retained his status, clung to his status as the Lord All-Powerful, he comes down and he begins that descent. There's a movie I watched a while back and it's called 12 Years a Slave. I'm sure many of you may have seen it. It's a true story from the 1800s. And it tells of this, the memoir of an African-American man who was born a free man in New York. And Solomon Northup, his name, he had a wife, he had a family, he was a successful musician as a violinist. He had this privileged status in New York society. He had wealth, he was enjoying it. In 1841, he was kidnapped, he was sold into slavery, and he was bumped around from plantation to plantation in the deep south for 12 years before he eventually managed to escape. But during that time of slavery, he endured incredible degradation. He endured pain and hardship. He's a, he's a, a tangible example for us that we've seen, that a man who was free, who had privilege, status and power, who became nothing. Someone ignored and despised and rejected, forced to do the, the kind of labour that animals were actually meant to do. He was brutalised, he was flogged and he was beaten. You know, I see that, mo- that movie and I sit and it's just utterly moving. But you, s- you see that this man, Northup, he is someone we would actually say, he's lost everything. That is someone who has lost everything. But for us here on the North Shore, we're, comf- we're Westerners, we... Uh, I think, struggle to grapple with what that really would have been like. We struggle with what slavery would have been like here in 2021, let alone what Paul is telling us about Christ. You see, crank that story of slavery up about a million times and you have Jesus. Jesus, in very nature God, ruler of absolutely everything, willingly gives himself to be a slave for his people, to save his people. He becomes a man. He becomes a creature in his creation. And he doesn't come back and say, I'm going to be a king in a country. He comes back as a peasant in Galilee. He comes back, Lord of all, as a peasant in Galilee who is then subject to his own creatures. Subject to his own creatures who then abuse him, treat him with shame and degrade him. Paul is making this point right now that if we truly grasp what Jesus did, it is mind-breaking. Do you grasp that? Do you grasp what Jesus did? For us, the cross is symbolic now and it carries great symbolism. But the cross in the ancient world was this this emblem of horror and shame and terror. Roman citizens wouldn't talk about it. It was impolite. It was disgusting. It was embarrassing. You just didn't... it, It was conversation faux pas. And you may have seen images in... Uh, medieval movies or times when there was these stocks in the middle of the, the, the village square. You put your head and your hands through them and people would just leave you there. Food throwing, mockery was the only thing you were getting every single day, day in, day out. It was taunting, ridicule, humiliation. The cross is that, a hundred times worse and ends in the most excruciating death that you can ever imagine. And Paul says, the one who is in very nature God, God gave himself in humility and obedience to a cross, to go to death, even death on a cross. 
back. Look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Those are great words in their own right, but when, when you give them some Old Testament context, they even get escalated further. Look at Isaiah 45 on the screen. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, they will say of me, and the Lord alone, deliverance and strength. All have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame, but all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. You put those two readings together, Philippians and Isaiah. Who is it that every knee will bow before? It's something for God. It's Jesus. Do you see what the Father has done for the Son in, in Philippians there? But why? That's the question. But why? Why does He do it? Verse 8, He was obedient to His Father. It was the Father's will that the Son came into the world to save His people through His death. But it was also Jesus' desire to serve. And so he placed the needs, our needs, above his own. He gave up his life for us. Man, friends, do you realize that? Do you grapple with that mind-boggling image of who our Savior is? We are worth so much to God that he would rather die to save us than live without us. It's his desire to serve that led him to do this desire to serve but what's beneath all of that what actually enables him to do it to gladly obey his father to seek the good of others i think it's chapter 2 verses 6 it's the heart of selflessness it is the very nature of god that is who god is loving selfless lovingly selfless see this christ-like attitude that doesn't grasp after privilege or advantage because he longs to give to others. That is the heart of our God. That is the Christ-like attitude that flows from that example of Jesus Christ. That Christ-like attitude. Jesus died on the cross and suffered in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. So that we might share in his resurrection on the last day. But friends, as you can realize, that hasn't happened yet. Yes, we still share in God's glory. We're seated with Him right now in the heavenlies and one day we will be raised for all eternity. But before that day, we've got to walk the talk. We've got to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's what Paul does then. He calls for a gospel mindset. He calls for it in verses 2 to 4. He, he then gives this humble example of Jesus and he does it to encourage us to remember the absolute joy and privilege it is that we have life in Christ. And so if we have life in Christ, we too are driven by a Christ-like attitude. We live selfless lives. We're called to live selfless lives. Lives that count others as better than ourselves. Lives that put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Lives of humility, not pursuing selfish ambition and having vain conceit. Those are the lives we're called as our own. But what's this all look like? What does it actually look like to walk that talk? What does it look like to paint that gospel canvas? It's setting the interests of Christ first in all your decisions. 
but setting the interests of God's people first in all your decisions. And life is full of them. Life is full of decisions. Life is full of choices. Every single day we make a million of them. What do I do with my time? What do I do with my money? Where do I live? What property am I going to buy to add to the portfolio? Where am I going to send my kids to school? And yet in every choice, in every decision, are you thinking, will this help or hinder people? If I take this job, will it help or hinder my ability to serve others? If I uh, pursue this holiday, this trip, will it help or hinder other people? If I enter into this relationship, is it going to help or hinder Friends, I keep banging on about it. We're not a friendship group. We're a fellowship. You are not just one of the people in this friendship group, independent from the rest of us. That's not who we are. That's not who we're called to be. This is a fellowship. And God has given you a place to influence and impact the lives of those around you right here. Be the example when you make choices to serve Christ sacrificially. Living out that example is far better than me yakking on here, standing and teaching, talking, talking, talking. You need to take that. You need to make that reality. Don't minimize the impact that you will have on people's lives. There are small ways. There are big ways. If you do live a complacent life, apathetically just doing whatever you want, not caring about anyone else, you are going to drag people down around you. And yet, if you pursue the attitude of Christ, if you learn to live like Christ, you are going to stir people to look to you and look to Christ as you point everything to Him. He must become greater. We must become less. You can have a powerful impact. And I know we all live on the North Shore. There's always this, and we live in a world that there's always this temptation to be captivated, captivated by the, the comfortable world, to be captivated and adopt the world's ideas of what it looks like to define status, the world's idea of what it looks like to paint a canvas, a life. It's always me before you. you know? What a privilege it is to know you. That's not what, how we think. In a world that condemns hypocrisy in the church, the only answer to that charge is for real Christians to live out real lives. We are called to walk the talk. So is your life centered on the gospel? Can I ask that question that I asked at the start of the sermon, has your picture of hopes and aspirations changed since the beginning of hearing what Christ has done? I know mine has. Mine has over the, the course of preparing. But you know, my picture isn't going to be the same as yours. It's not going to look the same. The details are all, all going to be slightly different. But all of our pictures need to share a striking resemblance because every Christian life is framed by the gospel. It's grounded in the humble example and it's painted in this colour of Christ-like attitude. Are you ready to embrace and live out this picture? It is a joy to be saved. It is a joy to be a Christian. Have a Christ-like attitude. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would spur us on with these encouraging words from Paul that we'd be reminded each and every day of the humility of our great King Jesus. Father, shape us to be a community that is driven to glorify you in absolutely everything we do, to grow in our understanding and our likeness of Jesus, to be connected in fellowship together, united in the gospel, and serving each other as we do so. And 
sharing this great news with this suburb and this world. The great news of the cross.